I'm here today with Michael Gibson, who is a venture capitalist. He's the founder of the 1517 Fund, and he is the author of Paper Belt on Fire, which is a really fun memoir and adventure story about his uh, journey from being a philosopher, uh, studying philosophy at Oxford, to running the Teal Fellowship and um, starting a movement to expose the ways in which higher education is more of a signaling offering than something that uh, provides actual substance. So um, as somebody who's myself spent 12 years in higher education, and um, Michael has also uh, done his time, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited for a conversation today about kind of the role of the university, the alternatives to the university, um, where we can create opportunities for the life of the mind and, um, you know, how do we train the next batch of elites um, if the university is not going to be the, the place where we expect them to get the training they need for the 21st century. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. That was a great summary. I appreciate that. Um, you know, yeah, 12 years. Wow, that's a long time. I can't. I think I was in grad school for, I guess it must have been about five years. So half the, half the time, less than half the time as you, or I can't remember exactly how long. <laughs> I've lost track, but still um, very long. You know, I, I don't know, maybe we could start off by discussing something in philosophy where um, it dawned on me, I was reading, of all things, a history of medieval schools, and especially uh, Catholic, where it, you know, the thesis of this book, The Envy of Angels, was that in the 11th, 12th century, you had this fork in the road where some schools were monastic and were very text-heavy, dependent upon memorizing scripture, analyzing scripture, and then passing on uh, the commentary and, and so on. But I, I, as I understand it, there was this other fork, you know, the other fork was about, um, they were called cathedral schools, and they were more about philosophical embodiment. And they drew inspiration from Christ and Socrates in a way where um, both, and, and there are other figures, I mean, Buddha, um, Moses, I, I guess, where in addition to, uh, passing their teachings on, and in the case of Socrates or Jesus, not even in writing, right? um, they somehow their their way of life and their embodiment was was the lesson. And my sense in academic philosophy is that this tradition is completely lost. That there is no, you know, it is it is completely an intellectual culture versus, let's say, a charismatic culture, where philosophical charisma. Uh, is what Socrates first and foremost had. Um, but I can't think of a single philosopher nowadays. It's pretty rare to think of someone and say, oh, yeah, you should go to that person for advice. They, they're, they're pretty wise. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're, we're in a dilemma. Let's talk to X. It's like, uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't know, the, the, the most famous philosophers of the last century, maybe veteran Russell. It's like he was a brilliant writer, but I don't think anyone would have said, oh, we should go to Bertie for advice. What, you know, what... <laughs> <laughs> what should we do with our lives? So I, I, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Why, why has the uh, charisma culture disappeared in philosophy? And 
uh, why is it so intellectual and, and what can we do to change it? Because I think there is something, I'm not saying that philosophy needs cult leaders, but I do think there is something to uh, someone's actual way of life that, that can also embody a philosophy and then in, in essence pass on its lessons. That's a great question. I think maybe we still have charisma, but we just assign charisma to intellectual virtues rather than to moral virtues. Like it's very rare that you hear, let's say, a philosopher praised for the way that they lived. It's usually praised for what they thought or how well their arguments were written. That being said, like I have heard John Rawls described as a saint. I, I think there might even be an academic article about him uh, as that's fair. He, he, he lived a very kind, generous, ascetic life. I think he had a home in Lexington, Massachusetts, commuted to Harvard. I mean, he was, he was like his, uh, his, his role model Kant in that respect, right? In, in the sense of like living by the clock and, and yeah, and, I mean, maybe people disagree with, uh, the Rawlsian philosophy, but at least people might appreciate the sort of integrity of a person who actually lived or sought to live in accordance with their principles, as opposed to um, the other fashion in philosophy, which is to be the devil's advocate. Um, and yep. the- yeah, I, I think, and it's true, Rawls has, I mean, he's like the Genghis Khan of political philosophy when it comes to descendants, <laughs> in terms, especially his students at Harvard, I mean. So, um, you know, he has uh, Tim Scanlon, um, Christine Korsgaard, a lot of... Uh, you know, and, and and I'm sure there are others too. Sam Scheffler, maybe. I, I don't know. I can't remember all his students, but he, he like a lot of the next generation of Rawlsian thinkers came out of Harvard. <clears throat> and what's interesting to me, though, is that his sparring partner in the late 60s and early 70s, Robert Nozick, um, was known to be, uh, you know, fun and, and exciting to, to be around. And his lectures, by all accounts, were... Uh, you know, fun to be a part of, but he left no descendants. He has zero. He, uh, he seemed uninterested in cultivating a following after him. Um, and, I wanna, and I wonder why, or I wonder what happened there. Maybe it could just be his views were so weird that no one wanted to, you know, work with him. Maybe, um, I, again, this could be like more hearsay or speculation, but like maybe Nozick was more the type of thinker who wanted you to be able to refute the consensus view, but you didn't necessarily know what he thought on any given issue. And so I think if, right, there's an aspect of philosophy that's just the ability to construct and tear down arguments, that's different from the sort of taking a stand aspect that maybe in the ancient world was more common. So I, I think I generally agree with your claim that... Um, right. Well, and then, and then there's, I mean, there are a couple things that follow on to this where I don't know the sample size, but there's a famous paper um, in, I think it's the, in psychology where they examined, you know, who are the, the rule breakers on campus. And it turns out moral philosophers are more likely to steal books from the library than, than others. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe that's a small example, but it's interesting. And then, and then another one is, is, is to see people preach and argue intellectually for one view, but then live another, and it doesn't really matter. And so this is most, I think, obvious in, in like political philosophy, where you have 
you know, really harsh egalitarians and so on. And, and yet they donate no money or, or, you know, they don't live a life of asceticism. Yeah, G.A. Cohen, <laughs> Cohen had that, uh, that book, if you're an egalitarian or if you're, why are you so yeah, right? sure? <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard, I've heard an explanation on that one. Um, I don't remember if it was, I don't remember if it was Cohen or someone else. Um, there, the, the idea was um, the revolution hasn't happened. So when the re- revolution happens, then we can all be egalitarian. But until then, like any, sort of all bets are off um, because you're actually hastening the contradictions of capitalism by I see. sort of, you know, aspiring to be super wealthy, for example. Um, that, that's actually in the service of the Marxist utopia. I- <laughs> Well, all right, that's fair. I mean, maybe maybe that makes. I don't sense. think that was but, that wasn't his answer, but but I think you know, in my book, um, there are things you can do when you're telling a story that you can't do in in linear argument or in proof. And one of those things is you know, drop subtle hints and develop themes. And I did leave academia and entered a world of 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 doing the world of of action. Let's say. And in, in my book, there, you know, when I met Peter Thiel, he, he would quote uh, Goethe's Faust, in the beginning was the deed. And, and I think that's because, I guess, uh, you know, Peter himself having, uh, you know, left, I mean, he, he, he was in law school and, and pursuing that track, I guess, after PayPal and so on, I guess he, he had realized that maybe uh, a philosophy could be expressed in one's commercial activity or in, you know, different areas of life. Um, and so that's something that always stuck with me. So even though I left academia, I still think about philosophical issues. And I hope what, you know, the story I wanted to tell in my book was that, um, was, was that what we do is an expression of our philosophy. And even if it's a business story about venture capital, we see the fund as a vehicle for that. Um, more as an expression of the theme rather than you know the the, the thing itself. In other words, um, action is an opportunity to embed your philosophy in the world, as opposed to <laughs> contemplation, where it's it's sort of there's no skin in the game, or there's less skin in the game. Um, yeah, there's, I, and this is an old debate. I mean, maybe it goes back to Aristotle, if not before. You know, what what is the highest form of life? Is it the life of contemplation, or is it you know, the life of action. And, um, and, and, you know, maybe what I've decided to try to do is to say that um, it can be both, that it's somehow in every action, there, there is something called, uh, let's call it contemplative action or um, action-oriented contemplation, where I think um, the embodiment of a, of a philosophy is important, like, yeah, you know, and and maybe in the in the Christian sense of the flesh became, or was it the word became flesh? Um, I think if we if we're too much in the mind um, and not really thinking about the world we're in, I think we're in trouble. But but also if we're too much in the body and uh, you know we're chasing pleasures and wine and drink and and living for the moment, maybe that's not so good either. Um, and, and I guess maybe it all comes back to the, the parable of the, uh, the grasshopper and the ant and, and the ants, um, where the grasshopper maybe represents the, the, the life of joy and consumption, uh, but the ants represent the, you know, the hardworking, <laughs> save for a future day. Um, but, uh, 
but I don't know. A life with 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 both, I think, is is probably the way to go. You spend some time reading Plato and Aristotle back in your philosophical days, and then um, in your more practical sort of turn <laughs> as a as a venture capitalist, and also um, as you describe in the book, a potential uh, CIA analyst. Although that didn't that didn't work out, but. Um, I think you make the connection between venture and and sort of CIA um, that there's an aspect to the work that's about scouting and sort of building a building a file on someone either literally or just mentally that's sort of like a psychographic or demographic understanding of like what are their odds that they're going to be a good leader or a, a detriment or etc. So you have to have a certain like analytical approach to people and talent and potential and um, I'm wondering, like, if that was always a theme in in the way that you like showed up in the world, like sort of this that that sort of analytical um, approach to people and and opportunity or risk, and then also if Plato and Aristotle or your philosophy has informed the way that you approach those issues. Yeah, that's a great observation. I think uh, so. As mentioned, as you mentioned, I. The first chapter of the book accounts a lot of my personal life um, and, and the reasons I, I did something like a, I, I interviewed to become a, a case officer, as they're, as they're called at the CIA, or enter into that program um, in the clandestine service, which, which was an experience. But, I, but it is, in a way, I, I guess I did put that as the first chapter, too, because it was, even though I had studied virtue ethics as uh, you know, as as originated in in Plato and Aristotle, I guess I hadn't really thought about how character and the you know the way that that there are types of people in the world, how that informs what people do, and maybe even how they perform at certain things. And so, in my attempts to work for the CIA and learning about you know the types of people that they pick, but also the 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 actual job of being a spy is about identifying certain types of people who might be susceptible to manipulation or to alliance. Um, and so, yeah, in a, in a way it was like, okay, I had that background in, in the ancient view of ethics, but then I, I saw it brought to life when I started learning about about that. And then, and then when I moved into the world of venture capital or into talent spotting, then it became front and center. So maybe just to emphasize the point, like there's a lot of things that people look for when they're looking for talent, um, whether in investing or any field, how much weight do you give to character relative to the other things that people might weight? let's say technical ability or track record, or I don't know, whatever the uh, sort of taxonomy is like, do you think you give more weight to it than than your typical venture capitalist, or like what is the the secret that you know that nobody else knows to sort of riff on Tio when it comes to character? So we give it, we give a yeah, we place a huge emphasis on it. Um, every every investor will use three main elements to evaluate an opportunity. The the first would be the character of the founders. Um, the second would be what's the potential market here? How big can this get? And the third would be the current state of the product or, or maybe even the product vision. And each investor 
will sort of establish their style based on which one of those they put the emphasis on. Like Steve Jobs was fanatical about product. I mean, this man was a intuitive Zen product master who would meditate upon product features, user experience. And um, I think he certainly had to think about where, let's say, the iPod or the iPhone would fit in, in the larger world. I think he knew the market size would be big enough, but he was obsessed with the product, which is natural because he's you know a, the CEO or the founder. Um, I guess there's a Sequoias, you know, the Yankees of Silicon Valley. Um, they 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 really care about that market size. That's something that they're paying attention to. But they're much they're a little they're later stage than we are. So we we focus on the team because and the character of the people because when we invest, we're when we did the Tail Fellowship, that was you know a grant to an individual. Now when we make investments as a fund, we're still the first money in. So it's typically two people in a garage or at a coffee table and, and some prototypes. Uh, so we really have to know that they have the right stuff to, to see this through. And not that we're perfect in judging that, but uh, I think maybe, you know, we've learned a lot over the years. So when we started the, the Teal Fellowship, we, we were too imitative of colleges. We had an application where people listed their GPA their test scores, what school they went to. We even had AP exams, all that stuff. And, and in the event, pretty rapidly, we discovered that these actually weren't great predictors of success when it came to doing something out in the wild, you know, starting a company and, and get, getting things going. So we, so we had to start uh, developing, you know, the traits, so, you know, writing down or thinking about the traits that, that we look for in people. Now, the, the first and obvious one that we learned fa- that quickly was that you can have all the IQ in the world or the technical know-how, but if you don't know how to interact with people and understand people, then, then you're not going to go far. So that could be, can you work with customers to learn their needs? Can you raise money from investors? Can you make hires? Can you find co-founders? Like these social, uh, as- emotional social intelligence uh, became very, very paramount. And so, as you might imagine, the Venn diagram of people who have the technical chops to invent something new that overlaps with the people who also have the emotional intelligence to manage a team uh, is, is vanishingly small. Um, what, what we see sometimes, though, is that if there is a founding team, two, three people, then, then you see a great division of labor in the best teams where, okay, maybe the CTO type, is, it gets to you know, zone out and code or build in the, uh, the CEO is more of the huckster people person, um, uh, that can happen. But, but that, that, that was something we learned. And then, and then what's more is we learned that the application itself is just a time slice view of someone and it's incomplete because, you know, they're just trying to, or it could be full of deception (laughs) or or you're not quite sure is like this information, not that people would lie about their test scores, but when it comes to character, people will tell you stories like how they persevered. I mean, every college entrance essay has got to be some, someone told me there's a a J curve story where, okay, you start out with some kind of setback and then you talk about how you you triumphed (laughs) after that. Um, So what we decided was uh, to, borrow Aristotle, is that character is revealed in action, meaning character is what you habitually do um, on average. And, and, you know, if you talk to sports scouts in, in any sports, they'll say the same thing as you can't judge a player by one performance. 
so we had to, we realized we had to get to know people fast or sooner uh, than just waiting for an application. So if we met them at a hackathon or on campus and interacted with them over six months, a year, then, then we had more data points to track, like, you know, what is the trajectory of this person? What do they like? And the flip is also true. I mean, they, they, they learned about us um, and what it was like to work with us. So I decided I hated applications. I much preferred uh, trying to just get to know someone um, and then making decisions based on that. So it's not a, it's no, no great investor. I mean, bats a thousand. You're lucky if you bat, you know, one out of five. Um, so it, it's still very much hard. And, the, and, the, and then it's also true that even, even if I list out all the virtues that great founders have, uh, many, many of them who possess those virtues fail still. So it's a very, very, uh, uh, what is it, like a nasty, hard problem. It's not, it's not easy. Like the rules and logic of the system are not set in place where you can just, as in chess, where if you, if you know all the rules, then you can just keep training and training and, and, and learning those patterns. I think there, there, there is some shifting there. For the, for the founders um, that are in the middle of that Venn diagram where they have, let's say, a sense of something's missing in the world and they, they have a burning desire to create something new, to fix that problem or to bring the world sort of beyond its Pareto frontier to a new place. Um, but they also have the high EQ um, to sort of talk to customers and talk to funders and hear uh, what's going on for them as they are right now and build a team and understand those, you know, what, what's going to motivate them. Like it seems on a superficial look, like the skill set pulls in two different directions, which I suppose is just archetypal of leadership in general, but there's sort of the contrarian dimension that's like, or in classical terms, the prophetic dimension. that's like things as they are, are bad. They could be so much better. Um, but then that compassionate side in biblical terminology, that's usually that role is played by the priest where it's like, come, I'll, you know, come, come to me. You can trust me. Like I'll, I'll cleanse you. I'll, you know, I'll make you whole. Um, and so like, I don't know, do you have any insight into the psychology needed to sort of both have that prophetic dimension and that priestly dimension, that sort of like idealistic view that that you need in order to let's say go do something kind of crazy as opposed to just work at you know management consulting but then you still kind of need that suave and that like worldliness so that you're not just seen as a lunatic unless maybe like it's okay to be a lunatic if you know and that that's the model but like for myself i i guess just being personal here like that's something i i think about because like i really like people and I think I have like a friendly disposition. I try to like make like solidarity with anyone. Um, but at the same time, like I'm not really happy with <laughs> the state of things. Uh, and so like definitely like find that to be a tension that I, you know, hold as it's like, do I, you know, how much sort of judgment versus mercy, if you want to put it like that, almost like do you hold, be curious what your experience is just working with founders over there is. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, we talk at one, one of the traits we just made a name for was we call Friday night Dyson sphere. 
um, because Dyson Sphere is the most ambitious <laughs> science fiction idea, or or maybe just even engineering. Maybe it doesn't even have to be the realm of fiction, right? That's that prophecy where it's a Dyson Sphere is this idea to to build some way to collect all the energy, excess energy of the sun. So imagine just a sphere of of solar panels all around our solar system. I mean, that would be the the, the crude version, but. Um, Friday night Dyson Sphere to us means we meet someone and it's Friday night instead of partying or hanging out with, with friends. I mean, maybe they're with friends, but they're, they're working on their, their vision or their project. And because it's just what they, they have a lot of fun doing and, and their curiosity takes them there. And, and what's more is like often the case too, it's like there, there are these types of people where it's a mix of a little bit of a huckster, but also a little bit of the prophet where there's some story that can take you from, okay, we're working on this lemonade stand on a Friday night, but by, by God, in seven years, this thing's get, we're going to build a Dyson Sphere company. <laughs> Here's how we're going to do it. Um, and, and those stories can be quite charismatic. Um, I think... On the other hand, though, the extreme would be a recklessness that has the charisma attached to it. So I think of people like Adam Newman, if you've, the founder of WeWork, if you've seen his, the documentary about WeWork, or I haven't seen the fictional portrayal, but in the documentary, it's quite clear that this man was an incredible salesperson. Um, he managed to convince people that this real estate company was uh, changing consciousness in the way that we relate to each other. <laughs> um, and, and people bought it. Uh, so there was something to the, the cult master there uh, that convinced people that they were seeing something that they weren't. Um, and then maybe Elizabeth Holmes is another example where people had overmatched the pattern. I mean, she dressed like Steve Jobs. She wore a black turtleneck. Everyone wanted to believe, who invested in her, wanted to believe she was the, the, the female Steve Jobs. Um, so and, and Jobs hat fits that because of his... Uh, yeah, his present, uh, you know, he's drawing on Eastern philosophy. He talks about the intuition behind product. He always had a little bit of the, 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 the cult master to him. Um, and, and certainly maybe that feeds into this idea, his re- reality distortion field. So I, I, I think there's something to charisma. And maybe some of us are born with it more than others, just as, you know, any dimension and character, whether it's height or speed or um, who knows what, but, but what can be learned, I think is, is interesting is like, can you, I don't, we, like we, we've done a lot of talent spotting, meaning, okay, we're out in the wild and we've got our binoculars and we say, oh, there it is. What we're not good at is talent development. So if you came to me and you said, Hey, how do I cultivate this virtue more? I'm not good at, I, I don't have a good program for you to follow right now. And and on the one hand, sometimes like when you come across this, that leadership charisma stuff, it just feels too, um, too uh, sickly sweet. It's like too, too cheesy. Um, but on the other hand, I think we shouldn't dismiss it altogether. I mean, maybe, maybe there is something that we can learn to, to improve on that dimension. With charisma, because that's come up a bunch, is that something that you feel like is just the good and the bad come together, like in Carl Jung's sort of view of psychology, where the weakness and the strength are the same thing? Or is it possible to sort of sift the wheat from the chaff and and take the aspects of charisma that are constructive while leaving behind the aspects that are destructive? Because 
Like, I, I think I agree with you that charisma is an undeniable, like, reality and an X factor and does motivate people to do things um, that they otherwise wouldn't do. But so often we see scandal after scandal um, where the charismatic person got too full of, you know, too high on their own supply or or just felt like they were above the law or, you know, whatever it is, like... And I always find myself like so disappointed. It's like, I can't believe I still get disappointed because it it happens so often and it's so cliched. But like, I just saw that this man who founded the L'Arche movement, um, I think he, he passed away recently, but a scandal came out after his death. Um, he was like a very charismatic um, leader in, in, Christian, in Christianity. Um, I've, don't remember if it was Catholic or not, but but basically, like <clears throat> he he created a network of homes um, or intentional communities throughout the world um, where servants, um, like as in servants of God, like sort of um, live with people who are special needs and take care of them and like live in harmony, and um, none of. The, the, the scandal wasn't that he took advantage of the special needs, but he took advantage of like people in his like inner circle, you know, sexual s- stuff. But like, this is an old man. Um, he's, he's deceased now. Um, but like, and I knew about this because when I was in graduate school, I knew somebody who was talking so positively about this large movement. And I was like, Hey, that actually like, that sounds very beautiful to let's just, you know, live, and be of service and it's not to diminish like the social good that I think those communities have done and still do but like it does make you wonder like okay well how much of this person's DNA is like in there and then is that you know is it like he was just compartmentalizing and you know he had he had good and then he had brokenness or like almost like this need to be loved or to be helpful or something is like misdirected so it's coming out as kindness and charity in in some dimensions but then in other as in other dimensions it's just coming out as like predatory and you know needy and and again like i i don't know this person and but i, I just like i guess the story i i was like wow even you too right like you too brutus or whatever but then i was like correcting myself on it of like well i mean sort of like what do you expect Almost so that that I was sad. I was sad that that was my reaction to my reaction. Was right. Well, maybe there are a couple thoughts there. One is there is something to I don't know. I'm no Jungian, so I'm, I'm not. I'm speaking on the fly here. <laughs> but but this idea that somehow um, even let's say let's say you are more of the Luke Skywalker or um, or Indiana Jones or whatever. It's like you still have to channel your shadow and whatever those darker elements are uh, somehow you have to master them or channel them to towards the good and in that uh, you know I, maybe you know you can have a guest on who can better explain this than i can but uh, you know where that seems true to me is is maybe just in the sense of bold assertion and an action where i think i think maybe like the dark triad is very assertive um, and the dark triad is, you know, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism is that it is very much out in the world and, and assertive of its, of what it needs and wants. Um, 
and and it is true that in 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 all arenas of life but in particular in business it could be the case that the landscape draws forth that character trait um you know politics is the same i think politicians if we yeah it would be interesting if someone invented a, a skull cap and we could just put it on their head and it's like okay this person's a sociopath this person because it would be fascinating like which professions draw these types of individuals more. <laughs> it's like oh my god half of congress is sociopaths <laughs> um so yeah i i think what you're saying is right in that respect um that that there are sociopathic narcissists and they are or they can become adept at manipulating people and taking advantage of them. Um, but I don't know what to do about it. Um, on, the, on the other hand, and, the, and you know, maybe to change gears slightly on this is, um, is in the symposium, uh, which is this discourse on love, we get these different speeches on what love might be, different definitions of love. And I always thought it was fascinating that uh, because it's it's one of these, uh, it's less of a dialogue in the traditional Platonic form. It's more just a series of speeches, and each one is a different cut on love. So Aristophanes, the comedic playwright, and then you know the Symposium is where one of the first instances we see this example of that that love is about finding your um, soulmate. You know the one person that you match with. Um, but then we get this interesting. Uh, view from Socrates about you know this Platonic view of love as the as the ladder towards the transcendent, um, but then it's so interesting to me that the whole thing ends and I never pronounce his name correctly, but Alcibiades is it is it a hard hard C? Um, Probably in Greek it's a hard C, and then we say Alcibiades because yeah, we're Alcibiades, like Frank, right. Frankish. <laughs> so you know, the, so we have this night of people enjoying their wine and dipping their bread in it. And, and, and Socrates gives this wonderful account of love. And then, and then in walks Alcibiades. And, um, and I'm not quite sure what this statement is supposed to be. This is where I think you can never just read a platonic dialogue or, or, or you know, the symposium and just take the arguments at, at face value. Because now all of a sudden we have to understand who is this person and what is their role in the Peloponnesian War and in the history of Socrates and so on. Um, and, 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 and I think Alcibiades is one of these figures that fits the description a little bit of what we're talking about, where apparently he was very charismatic. And I think he... I think on a shield, it's, it, was, it was said that he had a lightning bolt because he believed he was Eros incarnate or something. <laughs> I can't remember uh, the exact, or maybe that was like the definition of the tyrant was Eros incarnate. But, but Alcibiades seemed to draw forth on this. And so I think it is fascinating that in this discourse on love, it ends with this guy who comes bustling, you know, bursting into the, to the party. And he's this figure who many Athenians thought could save them against the Spartans, but I, you know, it's a whole epic story about his, his role in that failure. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to me that, that this, this debate goes back to that time even. Wait, how do you, how do you see the charisma debate mapping onto Alcibiades? Well, because he, it's like people wanted to believe that he was the answer. Now, why they thought that I think is the charisma. 
<laughs> it's like, I don't, I, I think, I'm not sure, he, I, you know, I'd like to know why people wanted to follow him, why they thought he was a great leader. Um, and then, and then there's this whole debate about who loves who, about, you know, do you love, it's like, you know, is he flirting with Socrates? What's going on here? And I think it maps onto it because, I don't know, yeah, maybe I'm getting too far in the weeds here, but it's like the, the Greek uh, organization of, of their army involved, you know, voting on who should be general every year. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you just had these, these uh, in any democratic process, you're going to have charisma is going to play a big role. So it's like, who should be the leader here? Who, sh- who should uh, take over? And I think a lot of people hung their hopes on someone like Alcibiades because he was so charismatic, but I'm not sure it was the right choice. Um, and, and the fact that it's, that it takes place in this, in the context of, um, this dialogue on love, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I've gone too far here, but I, but I think what you put your finger on is like charisma itself can't be the good. It has to be oriented towards the good. And then, you know, we're going to debate on what that is. Eros can take you to the divine, but it can also take you to the false messiah or the demonic, right? So you can't only judge somebody on the basis of the feelings that they have. You also have to evaluate the thoughts attached to the feelings I just had on um, Jennifer Fry uh, recent episode and she was she was criticizing the therapeutic um, sort of coming out of Christopher Lash this idea that we're in a moment where maybe we assign too much value to our subjective experience and not enough value to critically analyzing the thoughts <laughs> the, the implicit thoughts um, associated with those feelings and saying, well, are those thoughts in fact correct? Um, I know I know in cognitive-based therapy, which I don't know how um, popular that was in Lash's time, but may- maybe he was criticizing more psychotherapy because in cognitive-based therapy, um, one of the tools is actually to ask yourself if your thought is an overgeneralization and you find that oftentimes it is and then you're supposed to critique the thought and like, find the you know find the argument that makes it only 50% true instead of 100% true. Oh right, yep. Yeah, that resonates with me quite a bit. I I'll have to listen to that episode because if you make it all the way through to the end of my book. So the first two thirds of my book is this adventure story mainly of us you know finding talented uh dropouts or people who've never been to college of extraordinary ability and helping them go get started and then our work. And then, and then the last third of the book, I wanted to make it more on that prophetic side about, okay, here, here, here is the promised land. (laughs) Maybe it's not quite, uh, okay. We're never going to teach like tech and science. are never going to address the deepest questions of life. We're not going to teach you how to live or how to love or how to face death. Um, but if we solve these problems, I think we'll be in a really good spot. Um, and, and one of the things I think that is still on it left unexplored and understood in, in our culture is is the good life is is what is happiness or flourishing. And in that last bit, I do I become critical of this new fo- how stoicism has come into vogue because I think stoicism also falls into that category where there's almost there, there's too much of a renunciation of of the world and too much focus placed on the way we feel about it. Um, and I think that is a big divide in, in our culture right now. I mean, especially out of the world, out of the therapeutic world where I've benefited from therapy, I think it's great. But, but I do notice there is an a urge to push people towards 
more accepting of the world and accepting of yourself rather than changing it, that somehow the way we feel about things is more important than the state of the world itself. Um, and so, yeah, in that last bit, I, I, I do push against that because I think it is a dominant theme of our time. So you work a lot, a lot with people in innovation and most, a lot of innovation is driven by science and tech. Um, but as I think you're indicating with The Good Life, that's something that transcends science and tech, maybe even predates modern innovation, meaning like Aristotle and Plato thought about these questions and it's possible that their thinking on those questions is still relevant to us um, when we, you know, even though they didn't live in an industrial society, like questions of character and habit formation and what is good and what should we value and how should we think about our values and all that. So I think there's like a certain narrative coming out of like Tyra Cowen and Peter Thiel and um, it's not even a right-left thing like biology also, where it's just like um, we have we have stagnated in terms of growth. And if we want um, to avoid conflict, we need to keep the growth engine going because otherwise, like, um, if we rely upon the low-hanging fruit, like, that will disappear. And then a lot of our social problems and political problems are just downstream of not growing technologically. And so you have, like, let's see, um, you know, progress studies, coming out of like the Collisons and this emphasis on like, just figure out how the industrial revolution was able to get, you know, 2% plus uh, growth compounding every year for like a hundred plus years. And like, if you can just do that, like things will sort themselves out. But from you and and from others, um, I also hear like a more traditional or uh, conservative sort of word of caution to that narrative which is like, okay, fine, maybe maybe we should be growing, maybe we should value prosperity and innovation, but like, that's not a panacea um, because <laughs> look at all of the malaise that we feel um, in Western societies, even as, you know, we can get our groceries in five minutes, okay? But like, have you seen the suicide and like depression and anxiety rates, for example? Um, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm curious, like, how you see the abundance agenda um, relating to the more evergreen Aristotle approach, like human humanistic approach, which is like, hey, the good life also matters and may not necessarily be uh, part and parcel of this technological emphasis. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And, and maybe <laughs> I guess we could have a whole show on that question and never reach an answer. On the one hand, I do think just just looking at something like raw GDP or income per capita, I on the one hand, I think it, it it's clear that those uh, metrics aren't they're not going to encapsulate all the the best things in life. Um, but on the other hand, I think like there has been uh, probably too, especially in 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 political philosophy and other sectors of the academy where I feel like it's almost underweighted too much that they, they, they've discounted the progress that has been made too much. But I think it is true to go back to the idea of progress that in the same way that we might have a greater understanding of, of biology, I think we can have a, a better understanding of, of human flourishing. And, and maybe some of it is purely science related where we just have a better understanding of 
you know, nutrition, exercise, fitness. And, and I think, you know, those things could lead to a better life on average for a lot of people that human nature is something that's real. Um, and, and I think those mental health issues are, are another, um, another, uh, another sector of stagnation where it's incredible to me that we still don't know the causes of, of many major mental health issues from schizophrenia to um, depression and so on. These are very elusive categories. And you know, psychiatrists and psychologists, they still rely on the pattern matching uh, method for diagnosis. There are no clear hard boundaries on these, on these diseases where you know, there's no like biologic, we don't have an understanding of the biological underpinnings. We can't just do a brain scan and then divide people. Oh, you have this, you have that. Uh, so diagnosis is really based on this same sort of character evaluation, uh, which is interesting. That's as, you know, that goes back 200 years. So our understanding of the human mind, I think, is still very much in its infancy as, and, and as that relates to flourishing. Um, but, you know, we can, that, that's one topic. But the, the, the other topic is, yeah, how should we live and how should we love and, and what is, uh, how should we confront death? Um, and I think, a lot, I think in the, I mean, this is, I'm not adding anything new here, but the, the, in the, in the wake of the, I feel like we are in a meaning crisis where the death of God has, the, the star has been extinguished and the light carries on for some people in various ways. But, uh, for, for many others, uh, they, they are living in darkness and, and I think, um, we need to find a different way of being if, if, if you fall in that camp. And I'm not sure we have the answers right now. I know for some people, like the pursuit of technical technological progress is a kind of substitute for meaning. Um, I, either it is intrinsically meaningful for them, let's say like a la like Bill Gates, you know, effective giving. If we can just, <laughs> if we can just, you know, get more malaria nets to more people, like that's a good life. That's, you know, I don't need God to underwrite that. Um, and then and then for others, it's maybe it's a distraction, like, oh, I don't want to think about that whole Nietzschean thing. But, you know, thankfully, like, I've just got, you know, my job gives me enough challenges. Like, I like the people I work with. And, like, I can just sort of punt on that until, you know, retirement or something. And then hopefully there's enough like Netflix and just good, you know, you know, other, other nice consumer uh, yes. tech uh, distractions so that I, you know, I, I only, it, only... it may not be a meaningful life, but it's a comfortable one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's right. Um, I think we can't avoid the, the hard question of what the good is. And we're going to, and I don't know who we is. I mean, maybe some people do want to plug into the matrix and just become. And the good it, is platonic as in like, it's this sort of, you know, this form, this, this geometric, like truth, this unity of all things consilience, or is it more Aristotelian of just like, you know, local, a, a kind of like local good that connects you to some sense of the universal. Man, you've trapped, you've trapped me and I don't have a good answer because I have to come back to, well, just judgment and intuition. And I'm like, okay, well, if I see someone plugged into the matrix and their body's atoliated or they're looking at screen, you know, there's some crypto guy just typing in their phone, addicted to VR. To me, I have to judge that life and say it's not good. 
And then you'll say to me, yeah, but Michael, you just said that the charisma is is after the good, that we need to orient charisma towards the good. And now I'm telling you, well, look, that's not a non-charismatic life. I don't want to live it. That can't possibly be good. Um, and I don't, yeah, that that is a Ouroboros snake where, um, and I mean, maybe reflect on it and, and there might be reasons to reject one form of life over another. Um, but I think in the end, it always comes down to our intuition and judgment. And, and sadly, that can be wrong. I don't, the epistemology of the good is, is, is very, is a uh, nasty, nasty subject. I mean, you studied virtue ethics and then you, you mentioned that some appreciation of character has informed the work that you do. Do you feel like of the sort of traditional three moral systems that virtue ethics is the one that you want to hold up? Or do you think that there's a role for utilitarianism or deontology as well in, in thinking about the good? Because I feel like we live in a utilitarian time and so much of our justification, uh, again, across left, right, um, is framed in, in terms of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain for the aggregate. I think you're right. I mean, the Bill Gates example you gave is great, where it, is, it seems undeniable to say that if you decrease suffering in the world, I mean, that, that, that is definitely pursuing something worthy. I, I, I think that's true. Um, but on the other hand, um, maybe there are other things in life that matter too. And I, I, yeah, I don't have a knockdown argument for which ethical view is the correct view. Um, I certainly know that any one of them can't be the whole story. Um, because as I, I mean, there are just so many contradictions in in any consequentialist view that it's hard to, to know how that would guide us and what to do. To me, it, to me it's, it almost suffers from too much abstraction at a, at, as one flaw. I mean, there are things where it's like, okay, yeah, maybe you sacrifice the few for the many and, or, or there could be a utility monster. All these types of objections are real. But to me, one that stands out is that um, it just it, it it reminds me of the way that someone would say that a, a company the mission of any company is to maximize shareholder value. Okay, fair enough, but that doesn't tell you what to do uh, to to accomplish that. You know, <laughs> it's like that. To, uh, you know, you show up to work um, and so, and your boss says maximize shareholder value. That's not going to tell you what to do or or how to do it. Um, and, and and in that sense, consequentialism I think is the same. Where it's like, oh yeah, just do take that course of action that leads to the best outcome. Okay, well. Especially <laughs> especially when you throw long-termism yeah. into the mix, then it's like, well, <laughs> or, yeah. I'm, and not, then there's that I'm not maximizing too. shareholder value now, but just give me a, a thousand <laughs> years and I promise the discounted cash flows will work themselves out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, that, that, that's a failing. Um, of course, I do want things to go best. <laughs> <laughs> but not sure how to characterize that. And then on the other hand, I think the maybe deontology is actually underrated these days because it does seem it, it, it seems to have no foundation. You know, people are just like, oh, you know, dismiss it now as saying, oh, that's just the relic of some ancient uh, evolved behavior pattern that suited one environment. And now it's, uh, you know, not fit for the modern world. I can't remember, you know, who, who the, this guy out of Harvard thought he could justify utilitarianism this way. Um, 
and and I, I don't think that's quite right. I I think there there is something to the basic, like people just have an intuition that seems deep, and and may, I, I mean maybe we are evolved creatures, and that just explains it all. But but it just it seems to me the case that like a, a lot of people those trolley problems and every or all the thought experiments, I, I mean they're hard to dismiss, um, and and so. I don't want to say that that's completely false or, or, or that it can just be explained away as, as, you know, some behavior pattern that optimized for some ancient environment and now it's out of, out of date. Um, and then with virtue ethics, I, I think, I think it has so many strengths because, you know, just be a good person. <laughs> that seems like a much easier uh, way to live than to say, oh well, you know, what are the best consequences in ten thousand years? It's like that the midwit, the midwit meme on Twitter. Right? Yes. it's like just be a good oh, yeah, person, yeah. Uh, maximize the good, just be a good person. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it does need to be oriented towards something, um, and. I mean, like we're talking about with some of these character traits, like that, that whatever that charisma is that leads to great leadership. I mean, you gave a great example where it was oriented towards something awful. So, um, so yeah, um, just be a good person. <laughs> yeah. I do love I that. Think, I think maybe the point yeah. is that in, in the Jungian idea that when you orient towards the good, you're also orienting towards the bad. Um, like again, it's maybe a little bit too relativistic, but like, um, if you take the trait of like a person who turns lemons into lemonade, so like resilience, right? So it's like, okay, that's a great in the abstract, that's a great thing. Um, at the same time, what if what if the lemons are lemons, and now you're justifying it as lemonade, <laughs> um, and that's you know deceit or self deceit? So it's like, oh, that's good, right? Like so that. it's like, wait. So you're not capable of feeling sadness. Everything has to be like happy and positive. Like people talk about toxic positive positivity. Um, so I think right. So anything that's that serves one situation can also be taken to extreme, and that brings us also back to Aristotle, which is the idea that virtue is the the sweet spot between two vices. Like courage, courage is just the right d- dose of you know no, don't be too uh, timid and don't and don't be too rash. But it's like okay, well. You're gonna, you're gonna define that on what basis exactly? Like how, who who's in charge of like dosing that? And then um, like Annie Duke has this this idea of resulting, which is like you judge whether your decision was good or bad based upon how it turned out, as a as a flaw in logical reasoning. Like if you play poker, which she did for many years, so it's like you can make a right the right decision and still lose the hand. Um, it just means that overall. Overall, you'll win those hands, but but in any given slice, you're not. It's not always going to turn out fine. So how do you then judge? Like maybe you were virtuous, maybe you were vicious, but like you can't go with like it worked out for me in that situation. Yeah, right. I think there there are these paradoxes that I think we just have to learn to live with rather than resolve. And one of them is the the process versus results, or the decision action versus results, where because we can make bad decisions and have great outcomes. That's clear. And in, in poker, it's clear. It's like you can, you know, stupidly bluff your way to victory or you know get lucky. Um, on the other hand, you can make all the best decisions and still have a bad outcome. 
Um, so there are some people who think we should just rely on our decision-making quality and let the results, you know, whichever way they go, it doesn't matter. Um, maybe that's like the extreme yoga view or, or in the Bhagavad Gita where it's like, you know, you have a result, you have a right to your actions, but not their, their fruits. Um, and there is a, a profound dignity to that, I find. But on the other hand, I think we can't fool ourselves. Like if, if it's like, how do we know we're making good decisions unless like on average, you know, we seem to be having better outcomes than, than other strategies. So you're going to have to balance the two together. It's like, and, and in some cases in life, you don't get to run multiple attempts. So you can't, you can't figure out what the best strategy is on average. And so you're just going to have to hope that, oh, it was a good decision and it was a good outcome. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit to higher ed. I went to Brown, um, where you can study anything you want. You can make, you can even invent your own major. Um, Brown sort of abandoned the core curriculum and became hyper liberal vis a vis education, sort of at, coming out of the '60s um, and the student protest movements. And I personally benefited tremendously from going to a school where I had that level of freedom and autonomy. Ironically enough, like you could argue Brown is the most uh, libertarian of the Ivies, um, in, in, at least in, in, in terms of um, if you think of college as primarily signaling, you do have to go to Brown on average for four years, but like you don't have to take any class you don't want to. You can you can basically you can take all your classes pass fail. So there's a lot more auto- autonomy, um, and I think I got like tremendous bang for buck. Um, like I went in with such a thirst for knowledge, and I felt like I had tremendous access to professors who really like loved having the curious student come to their office hours. But I also saw many of my peers waste uh, a very expensive education um in my view in that in that it was mostly a social experience and then classes were a perfunctory thing um and like most of them will be fine because they'll get good jobs because they went to brown and like they'll they'll figure it out but i guess just taking that as like a microcosm um so for the listeners i think you know michael and this guy brian kaplan um are kind of part of a a movement um, of people who see the role of higher ed primarily as a, as a, as a signaling role rather than as a formation role. So um, you you come to college in some ways already formed, and then college just validates that you were willing to keep your head down for four years, show up to enough classes to get a pass and get your diploma. Um, and so. Uh, as opposed to like it actually changing you in some way or actually adding value in some in some way. And I think like one of the arguments given for this view is like a person who doesn't graduate from college but attends for like three years and some change um, ha- doesn't make as much money over their lifetime than the person who attended for four years. And it's like, what what was the difference between the two? Arguably just the diploma arguably just the ability to like stick it out. So what you're being rewarded for is like being sort of a a team player um, with a consensus, but not necessarily with the actual like learning or skills that leads to 
performance. On the other hand, like I've heard of you recently from someone who was sort of saying like, almost like college is a call option and you can't point to any one particular class as making a difference in your life, but just sort of like being there and having access to that experience gives you something. And it's like this intangible something, but it isn't just signaling. And like, like, I guess their argument would be something to the fact of like revealed preference. The fact that we keep doing it, we keep sending our kids to these schools. Um, it, it, and, and people are doing that even who arguably don't need to signal. Um, maybe, maybe they feel that college, even with all of its problems, still does offer this intangible something. And so why not give that to your kids if you can um, and let them figure out where the, where the value is, but sort of just trust the process kind of thing. So um, my question is, like, what is your view for higher ed as a whole versus the Ivies? Because I think those are like serving different populations. And then like the Teal Fellowship, um, I think it was like 20 um, exceptional people who dropped out of college and had to be 19 or younger um, were given $100,000 by you um, for over a decade to go and like do something super ambitious. Um, but like, how do you scale that? Um, culture or the insight behind that more broadly given that not everybody is exceptional <laughs> and not everybody not everybody is contrarian so like if college is just signaling or is a lot more signaling than than sort of we think but then what should we do given that for the millions of people who you know need to be formed or given a path to self uh self-reliance if college isn't offering that yeah, man, there's a lot there. I, th I think the debate has just become so important and heated because of the economics, because the cost of college is so high now. I saw that Yale recently raised its tuition to 83000 a year. Um, Stanford, 80000 A lot of these top schools now are charging that, that number. And while some people say, well, that's just the sticker price, it's still something like 40% of the students are paying that. So that's pretty, pretty expensive. So naturally, yes, it, it, like, because the cost is so high, it begs the question, what are we getting in return? And should we support this at public expense? Uh, all these debates become much more uh, salient and contentious. Um, I think if, if college were very cheap, no one would say, don't go to Brown and explore. You know, if, if you want to take four years and wander the library and pay 100 bucks a year to do it, that would be amazing. Um, but we don't live in that world. So, so it, it does become a question that I think any 18 year old should pose themselves, which is even if you do love poetry and philosophy or theology and, and so on, is that um, you, there is a cost that comes with it. So maybe on a prudential level, you should help, help your future self by you know, making sure you're on the right path if you study these things, that when you graduate, you won't be so far in debt that you now have no choice about what kind of job you have because you just need a, a safe, well-paying job to pay off those bills. I think that's a, a tragic situation for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that, that colleges just confuse a lot of things because, because they do select people of extraordinary ability to begin with, especially at those Ivies or you know top 20 schools, the people who come in naturally are curious, like you described, you were hungry, thirsting for knowledge. 
And so when you were given the keys to the library and the professors, you just went, you went wild <laughs> and that's fantastic. Um, but the college maybe didn't, I mean, maybe it, it, this is the problem now is that colleges and, and maybe these things are tough to measure, but it would be interesting to see like, okay, given what you were at 18, when you set foot on campus, how much did you change over the four years? Did, did your curiosity expand even further? And that could be true because you, you were introduced to curious minds and they excited you. But it'd be, it'd be wonderful if we, could, if we knew that college did that, in fact. But right now we just have no evidence because they don't measure these things. And the same could be true of, of critical thinking or of uh, how to tear apart a philosophical argument or... Um, or even some of these questions about, you know, the, the, whatever the deepest views are or truths of the humanities. Um, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, colleges just assume that if you get a major in one of those subjects, then you've fulfilled the mission statement. But they have no evidence that that's true because, at the, you know, you step foot on campus at 18 and then you leave at 21, 22. No one takes a measurement at that point and says, oh, well, here's the difference. So that that's an, that's one of the toughest things about the college debate right now is we're not quite sure what it does exactly. Um, so we have to, like you mentioned, some of these approaches that economists use to try to tease out some of it. And, and it's clear that, yeah, the skills are not, imparting skills are, are not the, the, main, uh, the main thing that colleges do based on like the sheepskin effect you mentioned is a good one where yeah, that person who's one credit shy of graduating doesn't make as much as the one who leaves campus uh, at graduation, um, something like 30% less uh, in their wages. So uh, that, that's that's interesting data point on that. Um, so yeah, I just wish we knew what was in that black box of, of what higher education is and what does it do to people? Um, and, and how does it persist? I mean, that's another thing. So, yeah, we don't really know what happens in, during that period, four-year period. It just seems to be the case that you come out and you do well in life, and, and that's enough for people. Um, but, but, yeah, I think the signaling story complicates that debate. Um, certainly the ability bias, which is a little different. The ability bias is just, yeah, you were a great person and they selected you. And then the, the, the signaling story is that you needed that four-year obstacle course in order to signal something about you. Not that you learn skills, but that you are willing to undertake a four-year project at great expense and take assignments and complete them. It might be very difficult to measure some of these things. Like there's, um, So I really resonate with Tyler Cowan's idea that like one of the greatest things you can give to somebody is the gift of raising their ambition. And I feel that you know, I feel that I've been gifted that at many points in my life. And one of the ways that I was gifted that was by getting admitted to Brown. Another was by getting a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. Like, in some ways, those things were flawed metrics because they also limit you to a certain conception of, you know, what ambition looks like. Um, and they can be confining in a way, right? So it's like, okay, you know, you're great at this, therefore go be a professor. And it's like, no, you kind of have to kill your darling as well. Nonetheless, like, it can be very transformative to, so I imagine a similarly with the Teal Fellowship, like there's a huge delta for a 19 year old or 18 year old just to be given that vote of confidence, forget even the money, forget even the cohort. Like, yeah, absolutely. 
I, yeah, my, I, I think what's important are arenas of ambition. And an arena has a, I don't have a, a fine definition of this, but, but I think with, as you're describing college, you enter an arena of ambition where in the same way if you enter when people aspire to become NBA stars, they understand that there's, you know, you got to be good in high school, maybe you play in college and, and maybe you get drafted and, and then you're competing at the highest level. Um, if you didn't know that institution existed, then you most likely would never have the ambition to be great within it. Um, and I think the same is true, like you're saying, in, in universities is they do uh, give you entry into this arena where greatness is real and palpable. And it could be within a discipline, but it also could just be maybe that this is, you know, illuminates other areas of life. Um, and so for the fellowship, I think, I think it, it, if we had just started that, you know, any point in human history, I don't think it, it, it would have worked. What was important was that this vague institution, this arena of ambition of Silicon Valley startups had, had been in place for 30 years where doing a startup was a thing. It was like this was more intelligible to people. Maybe in the same way you could go to Hollywood and, and become a movie star. It's like, oh, go to Silicon Valley and start a company. So that was in the background. And then you even had the conspicuous examples of Jobs, Gates, Zuckerberg, especially Zuckerberg most recently at that time. Um, so we were able to uh, make concrete the, institu the institution of, hey, you, this is a path within this arena of ambition. But I think that wider arena is important to think about. Um, and, and maybe universities supply that or at least a window into different arenas. And I wonder, though, um, it's like, and I, I don't know, I think we don't think enough as a society about arenas of ambition because it's like things wither away or I don't know. It's interesting why art forms die. Like, I think that becoming a novelist used to be one of these things where people like the great American novel was this, this Moby Dick everyone was trying to find and um, not, novelists would compete amongst each other to be the best of their generation. I, you know, I don't think that's true anymore. At least it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be an arena that is pulling in the same talent that it used to. And maybe that's fine because those people go on to become showrunners and write White Lotus or, you know, I don't know. But, um, but I, I wonder about that larger question of arenas, though, because I think, I think it is important. Like what draws forth people's best efforts and talents and virtue? Um, again, we come back to this question of charisma. It's not attached to a person. It's attached to an arena or an institution. But there is something to it where I think you're right. You come on campus and there's this glory. The architecture is beautiful. You meet these professors. They can be inspiring because they believe in the life of the mind and, and the pursuit of truth. Um, and, and I think that that embodiment aspect of it is really important. The idea that the great American novelist is now pursuing like a Netflix special um, reminds me of sort of Kafka's story of the hunger artist which begins um, by saying that, you know, we don't live in a time anymore where there's such a thing as a hunger artist. Like we've, we've lost that, um, to use your phrase, we've, we've, lost, we've lost that arena of ambition. Um, and then it proceeds to describe sort of one of the last hunger artists. And it's a horrific, in a way, a story about a guy who makes a living starving himself for public spectacle. And it's like amazing because it has this nostalgia to it of like, oh man, remember the, Remember those days when there were hunger artists, but also this revulsion of like, 
thank God there aren't any hunger artists. So it's like we put the hung we put the hunger artist out of business, right? That's sad for the hunger artist. But then it's like, okay, but like that was pretty messed up. So I I don't know, like I like great American novels, but I'm also like not sure that we've lost the ambition so much as that we just take ambition and put it into different things depending on kind of what society needs to esteem. So I I, th- I agree with you, like philosophically, it's important to esteem the right things and you have to be, think about what, what we ought to be esteeming and probably we're not esteeming the right things across the board. Well, also, I think maybe it's too vague and abstract. So I, I think a lot of younger people arrive on campus and they might become enthralled by the life of the mind, but it's never clear what it would take to achieve greatness within a field. And that bothers me. That's why I think it's important to specify some of the unsolved problems in different disciplines. Because if you knew by solving any of these or resolving these issues that you, you'd earn your place in the pantheon, maybe that would motivate people more. Whereas now it just seems amorphous. It's like, oh, I'll go to, oh yeah, I want to be a great physicist. What does that mean? Oh, I need to get into Caltech and then maybe I get tenure track somewhere. But it's never clear like what you do as a physicist. Like what will it be that, 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 you know, what discovery will it take to ensure your greatness? It's not clear. Yeah, I wonder about that as well. I think that has to do with metrics because it's easier to measure, let's say, number of articles written in a year or published in a year or a number of books um or like whether your you know promotion committee sort of thinks that you're part of the guild like those things are measurable whereas like greatness by definition is kind of amorphous and from what we know of history like typically polarizing because if it weren't polarizing like it would it would just be consensus so you kind of have to risk being an outcast. And then if you're lucky, you get accepted. You get you get, you go from outcast to deified. Um, but how many people just kind of know how to climb the ladder and also be great at the same time? Like, I don't, what, what are the case studies of that? I feel like it's like some of it is just professionalization. It kind of weeds out greatness. Yeah, and some people, I, I think of Andrew Wiles, the mathematician who proved Fermat's last theorem. He, he worked on that in private for something like 10 years because he didn't want to, he was either through embarrassment or shame or secrecy, he, he felt he could not tell his colleagues that he was working on one of the great unsolved problems. And so he, he in order to stay relevant in his field, he would like publish side papers every so often. So his colleagues knew he still existed, but <laughs> it wasn't until he was ready that, that you know, he stepped out onto the stage and said, ta-da. Um, I wonder if there's something sad about that to me that, you know, he felt he had to hide uh, because, you know, I think there is this fear that who are you to work on this, this, this problem? You know, the greatest minds of the past, they couldn't do it. There's no way you could. What do you think specifically with the great American novel, like caused the decline? Like how much do you see that as sort of a, a tr- traditional story of decadence of like, we just don't, we're not ambitious versus maybe like technological change has just rendered our you know attention span like you know such that nobody wants to read a thousand pages or if it's like the david foster wallace infinite jest syndrome of the novel has self-deconstructed in this sort of hyper aware like irony and so there's just no more there's nothing more to do like it's all been done yeah, 
I think the quickest and simplest explanation has to be technological change for sure. That, that, that has to feed one, you know, one of the main causes is just the amount of tension that it requires to read a novel and appreciate it is very different from just watching TV or, or looking at your phone. Um, so, so there's competition for attention in a way that there wasn't in the past. And, and, and maybe the same thing could be said of, let's say, photography and painting. Um, but that, I find that explanation very unsatisfying. Um, I think it has to be part of the story. It's not the whole story. Um, I think to get the whole story, we'd have to examine the 20th century history of the arts as a whole and then literature in particular. So I think, um, you know, broadly there was this, after the First World War, artists decided to reject uh, a lot of what artists in the past pursued. So maybe maybe pre-World War I, art could be characterized as the attempt to to produce beauty. Um, But after that point, it became something instead. It became the effort to uh, produce the truth or to demonstrate the truth. And what was the truth? It was the ruins of World War I. It was life is fragmented. Life is suffering. Life is chaos. And therefore, we need to reject the art forms that seem to embody the opposite. And so it's like in, in, in literature, uh, the pursuit of truth meant, well, life is not a story and there aren't characters and it is fragmented and awful and so on. And that became the dominant mode of, of, of literary fiction. Um, but the same is true of music or of sculpture and um, architecture and so on. You saw this rebellion against these traditional forms of the past. And so when each artist was competing to see what they could, what element could they take away from the art and still call it the art, that became a, a arms race to, to like minimalism of, some, you know, of like, okay, well, is this, there's no rhyme, there's no meter, is this still a poem? Or, hey, this is a urinal on a plinth, is this still art? Uh, that became the great debate in, in, especially among, you know, let's say prestigious or high status artists and, and writers. So maybe Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake is maybe the pinnacle of this is like, is this still a novel? There are no characters, there are no, there's no plot. And that became the dominant mode. But at the same time, interestingly enough, we saw a flowering in literature. It wasn't characterized as literature because it was taking place in the slums of genre. But if you think of the great works of fantasy and science fiction, um, they are powerful and wonderful. So, it could, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of these things, but I can still acknowledge that they're great works, whether it's the Lord of the Rings or the Dune series um, and, and so on, that, that, you know, those, those art, that, that form of literature is very much alive to Harry Potter. I mean, I think of how successful J.K. Rowling is and how many people loved her, her novels. Um, and, and it's interesting to me that we still live in this uh, like class-based society in literature where the higher class doesn't believe in, in, fic- in, in fantasy, science fiction, uh, 
and and yet on the other hand they all seem to want to dabble in it so it's like you get cormac mccarthy's the road which is a classic work of dystopian science fiction but you would never see it placed on that shelf in the bookstore instead it's always in the literary fiction like uh so i i it's like i think what's clear to me is like people are willing to read that stuff if you if you tell a gripping story and it can be fanciful it could be realism too i still think there are things the novel can do that other forms of technology can't and it could be world building it can also be bringing you inside the the consciousness of of another person and i think that is a technology that 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 novels have to them that that and and, and perspective is so hard to capture in in tv and movies uh in the way that you can get it from point of view in a novel and and i still think that can be a powerful medium so it's it's interesting to me that we still have culturally dominant novels like Harry Potter or you know there are successful science fiction books and so on um literary fiction is 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 becoming anemic <laughs> um and then there's this 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 thing that the novel can still do that i think other forms of technology can't so that leaves me almost hopeful that okay well actually there is a place where there could still be a great american novel and maybe it doesn't look like philip roth or john updike or john steinbeck but it could be something you know it could be neil stevenson maybe maybe 100 years from now people will read uh, snow crash and the diamond age as as these prophetic and truly american masterpieces um i'm not quite sure but but I, i i don't know so these things i think are are fun to debate because it, it seems to me that it, it is overdetermined to say that oh well you know the no one has the attention to read a novel anymore one thing that impressed me about um your story is just your openness to do something new like you were sort of in academia but then like you and you ended up becoming an entrepreneur and now you're an investor and like I think there's probably a lot in your story that many people would be interested in just that large question of like how do I make a change in my life and not get stuck in the thing that I happen to be doing or that I'm being praised for doing but like yeah it maybe not even increase my ambition but just almost like tilt my head up down or you know to the side and see like what else is out there um how is that like transition process for you going from you know being sort of in an in a library and talking to people on philosopher's lane to like being in a corporate environment and then you know i'm sure like you know having to deal with like legal and hr and just like being an operator <laughs> <laughs> yeah i th- i think it's easy to blur what in fact are long or felt like long periods of time and that were quite difficult. So I don't want to make it seem like these transitions are easy and you just need to make the leap of faith. So when I dropped out of grad school, my girlfriend at the time lived in Cambridge. She was a student at Harvard. Um so I I I naturally moved there and my first job wasn't as a writer for Technology Review. I got a job as a barista. <laughs> I was one of these overeducated baristas at a chocolate shop in Harvard Square called Burdick's and I was working, you know, 8 hours a day on my feet. It was it was hell. And I had people yelling at me cuz the order was wrong. I had to take the trash out and I just remember having some tough days thinking, "Oh my god, you know, 
yeah, a year ago I was at the Bodleian Library reading Aristotle, and <laughs> now I'm taking trash out at the chocolate shop. What did I do with my life? Um, so there were there were moments of doubt, and um, and and you know, fortunately, I either you know through support or just through my dream of wanting to write and. and do something different. I just, you know, I kept moving forward and, and I can't, I think it was something like four months or three months, three and a half months. I can't remember how long, but I did that. And then I got the job uh, writing for tech review. And so during that time, yeah, that was certainly hard. And then when I, and then I learned that journalism wasn't what I thought it was. So it's like, I thought, so look, I, I left grad school cause I wanted to be a writer and I, I get a job and I thought, okay, I'm going to put in two, three years as a journalist, cut the fat off my prose, and then I'll be ready for the main event, which will be the novel or the nonfiction book. Um, but then I, you know, I was very disillusioned with journal, the state of journalism in 2007, 2008, where by that point it had become like the, re even by then the resources weren't there to support the style of writing that I loved. It just could not afford to pay a reporter to spend a lot of time covering a subject. Instead, it became this holy press released based industry. Someone makes an announcement, you interview a couple people about it by phone, and then you put a story out and, and, and it's pretty lame. Uh, so, you know, and that, and then at that point I was thinking, oh my God, you know, what am I doing with my life? I, I left, <laughs> did I make the right decision? Um, so every step of the way, I think nothing is, is ever going to satisfy your ideal view of life. But, but I do think it is important to, to discover that what's in your heart and what your gut tells you about the way I think orientation is a great word because you want to orient yourself towards that, that dream. Um, and, and you know, sometimes the short term or the obstacles are going to block the view, but, but you want to, you want to hold steady and, and that can be hard, but, but I encourage everyone to do it because at least for me, <laughs> uh, so far it's been, it's been, I've been doing all right. That's a, a nice note to end on, but it also takes us full circle to Eros uh, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. as the thing that yeah. simultaneously, you know, points us to heaven and also probably directs us to some false positives along the way. Um, but, you know, if in the beginning was the deed, then maybe we need we need those false positives to to bring us closer to the to the uh, true positive. <laughs> yeah, that's well said. Well, thanks for having me on. This is great. I love talking to you, man. So great to have you, Michael. Thanks. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.